Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. Get prepared to be edified by today's Spirit in Action guest, Myron Buchholz. Myron has spent some decades teaching high school history, 18 of those years here in Eau Claire at Memorial High School. He's also an associate member of Veterans for Peace and has a daughter serving in Iraq, so he brings deep passion and thorough knowledge to his opposition to war. He's a regular presence at Eau Claire's Anti-War Witnesses, and it's a pleasure to know Myron Buchholz. Myron, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is the laid-back season for you. All you're doing is driving around with kids these days. You miss teaching history in the summer? Is that a thirst, or is it just really recuperation time for you? I like to describe myself to people now as living a, a French lifestyle. I understand what it means to have ample time off to recharge your batteries. Why I look so forward to going back to school is because I've had time to get away from it and to recharge. And, of course, I also have health care. I am fortunate, and I describe myself as having basically single-payer health care because I don't care who pays for it. I have it, and I have ample vacation time in the summertime. So with the exception of probably not drinking as much wine as I should, I can describe myself as almost French. Très bien, très bien. How long have you been teaching history at Eau Claire Memorial High School? I just finished my 12th year in the building, and we moved here in 1997, and I was an emergency replacement for a teacher and got my foot in the door, and they haven't got rid of me yet. Could that be because you're taller than all of them? You're physically intimidating? Is it because you are not a pacifist? Well, one of the things, as a very young teacher, I realized very quickly, this is my 28th year teaching overall, was that being abnormally large really does help in a classroom. If you want a prerequisite for a teacher, certainly you know a little extra height and not looking like the friendliest person in the world sometimes helps. Of course, the way that I've gotten to know you, Myron, is by the stand out there, the Iraq Moratorium stand, and I've known you to be active protesting the war, trying to bring some rationality to our governmental politics. How long have you been in self-identified as anti-war? Is it just the Iraq war? Is it go back to Afghanistan? Does it go back to previous wars? Well, it goes back to the first desert storm uh, when I really became interested in the whole concept of, you know, what we were really going to accomplish. And I also became very interested in how the media drums it up and makes it look like a video game. And I had some students then who were 
actually more anti-war than I was. And it didn't really occur to me until I was showing video in my classroom in 1991 and the wonderful videos, wonderful in quotes, videos that were shot of our laser-guided bombs being so accurate and blowing a building up. And I was showing that to my students, and it just occurred to me that there's people in there. Were all of them bad? According to our military, that building needed to be blown up. And I stopped cheerleading for war. I was never really much of a cheerleader for war, but it just really turned me off. And, you know, from about 1991, the folly of war has really just soaked in. You said you weren't a cheerleader for war, but evidently you were kind of balanced either way. I mean, you could have gone, yeah, maybe this would be a good war, that's a bad war. You've got a different perspective, I think, these days. Now when you look back at previous wars, what's your viewpoint? Do you have an idea that, okay, these wars are okay and those ones weren't? Well, that's a really good question, and I have started over the past number of years um, pointing out to my students that you can find encyclopedias of war, which will give an encyclopedia version of virtually every war in human history, and they're fairly thick books because there's been so many of them. And my question is, go into that encyclopedia, open it up anywhere, read about the war, and then ask yourself if this sounds like that made sense. From the perspective of the looking back, I say all wars look stupid. When they're a current event, they all seem to be the thing that we need to do at the time. Somehow we have to reconcile the difference between those two things. So in America's wars, as an American history teacher, I even argue that the revolution, the American Revolution, didn't have to happen. The Canadians got their freedom. Uh, they have the same rights that we do now. They didn't fire a shot in anger. And I understand that, you know, speaking about the revolution can cause some people to uh, sit up and take notice because that's supposed to be one of our great wars. And truthfully, you know, we did get some good documentation out of it that stood up the test of time. But the actual war itself was really foolish. World War II is an interesting, you know, discussion. One of the things that I try to point out to people is that especially in this modern era where almost everything is compared to World War II. Every war is compared to World War II. And I like to tell people that not every war is World War II. When our greatest pilots come back from the areas that we occupy and describe the, the fact that these other countries have the greatest militaries and the greatest air forces and the greatest technology, I might sit up and take notice. But, and, of course, that was Charles Lindbergh and in Germany before World War II, he came back and, you know, we didn't have any airplanes like the Germans did. And, you know, there were people that were trading with Germany and they were our best buds. And, and then you have this bizarre leadership take over and convince a significant percentage of their population that going on a war of conquest is a good idea. And, of course, it backfires something fierce. But in our current sense, we compare everything to World War II. And then on that same topic, I always ask that if World War II is so great, ask yourself, how did it work out for young Germans and young Japanese? And then all of a sudden the conversation changes quite a bit. You know, from our history book, we do nothing but glorify World War II. Uh, for the Japanese, they're still struggling with it. Uh, many Germans still struggle with it. You know, we look at war through such rose-colored glasses and through such 
a narrow, narrow view. And once you expand that view a little bit, it's it starts to look, I think, more realistic. When you say that the wars look stupid, and you also said in there that you think about a building being hit by one of our smart bombs, and then you realize that there's people in it, some of who are probably not bad folks. What is it that makes it stupid? I mean, obviously, you know, you've got something like Germany and they decide to go on this war of conquest. Stupid idea on their part. Do people who are facing aggressors have another alternative? Is there an option that we could take that says we've got to preserve our lives or our freedoms or our well-being in some way without going to war? Well, I'd like to see us try. I mean, we only have one answer for any perceived threat of aggression, and that's to attack. And using World War II as an example and using other wars as an example, when I I say stupid, obviously that needs to be described in many different ways. But one of the problems that I have is is how easy it is to convince young people to go and... Uh, die, put themselves in harm's way, and the people doing the convincing frequently never experienced anything like that themselves. So we are led to war. We are convinced to be afraid when in reality there probably isn't that much to be afraid of, and we, we do it over and over and over again. So when you take a look at any of the wars in human history, you kind of see that same pattern. You have a bunch of wealthy leaders at the top convincing people from peasants on up that the right thing to do is to go march off to war and, and somehow you know win the day and and this war will solve everything that's another part of the you know my, my stupid answer to war is that we hear that we have to do this because not doing it will mean our world is worse I don't think you can prove that to me in history books that war has actually really improved us as a people. Now again, World War II being being an exception. Gandhi said, you know, every tyrant fails. Every tyrant throughout human history will fail. And how do we go justify World War II? Well, especially when it rolled over right into the Cold War, causing millions more deaths as it expands into Korea and Vietnam. All you can do is speculate. All you can do is wonder. But I really get tired of hearing World War II being described as is our good war. You know, when all other wars taken into consideration like that seem to look pretty foolish. Of course, Myron, you're a teacher. You're a teacher in a public high school. You're a teacher in public high school in the Midwest, which means that there's Middle America looking at you, and Middle America tends to shy away from saying things so clearly as war is stupid. But you're standing up in front of students and talking to them. Are you teaching them sedition? Is this okay? What? How do you talk about these things with your students? Well, ask questions. You know, we're supposed to live in the information age, and we have so little information. One of my favorite cartoons I remember looking at from the run-up to this present war in Iraq uh, was uh, of a uh, looked like a middle-class living room and a man sitting in a chair with, with newspapers and magazines and a child laying on the floor watching TV and there seems to be all kinds of information in the panel. And the child says to the parent, why are we attacking Iraq? And the parent says, because Iraq attacked us on 
and the caption was something about so little information in the information age. Here's a family that was surrounded in the cartoon, granted, but we, we, we know this happened for real, surrounded by information, and a significant percentage, almost all that information was bad information. Uh, again, being led to war, being manipulated to go to war without thinking about it. So, you know, my challenge to my students is just to, first of all, do multiple sources. When you look back at the run-up to Desert Storm and the run-up to this war and now we're in Afghanistan, you look back and, and you see the same pattern over and over and over again, that there was just a simple rush to war. The The dissenting voices were quieted. They were almost completely shut out of the press, and people bought into what the leaders were saying. After the fact, the leaders say, well, we didn't know, and that doesn't do much for the 5,000-plus dead soldiers and close to 100,000 wounded at this point, and the fact that we are almost bankrupt because of our wars of aggression. So it's a, it's a challenge to, you know, fine, you can be for a war, but make sure that you have looked at all of the pros and cons and made an informed decision and not just parrot talking points that Saddam is a bad man. So from your point of view, with the information you've garnered, you've looked all around Myron and you said, we didn't go to Iraq because they attacked us in 911 because they didn't. We didn't go there in order to get weapons of mass destruction. We knew we didn't have them. After you've eliminated these, what is the reason we went to Iraq? Well, I think uh, George W. Bush wanted to somehow avenge his father. I think he had that, uh, you know, a real complex about that. Oil, I mean, the first name for it was Operation Iraqi Liberation, which, of course, is oil, and they changed that to Operation Iraqi freedom, it's power. You know, when you come right down to it, it's its greed and power. And the greedier and the more powerful a society gets, the more likely they are to end up in a war. I mean, look what the British did in India. You know, you, you know look at Germany. I mean, Germany was rebounding from the Depression, and they became, their leaders became incredibly full of themselves and became incredibly greedy and, uh, and uh, assumed a tremendous amount of power. The leadership left unchecked, you know, in greed and power invariably leads to war. How do you get more powerful? You've got to take over more people. And we have no concept of the history of the Middle East as a people. You know, we look at them as like we saw the, you know, the Vietnamese as little people in their black pajamas, little brown brothers. And we have this superiority complex and this American exceptionalism that, uh, you know, doesn't hold up well in history because everybody comes crashing to a halt. And one of my favorite things to remind people is that the nickname of Afghanistan is the place where empires go to die. Because there have been a lot of powerful empires that have tried to get their foot in Afghanistan, you know, the last, of course, being the Soviet Union. And for all the cheerleading of how you know the Reagan era ended the Soviet Union, I always think it's quite a, a, an omission to mention that the Soviets got bogged down in Afghanistan for about 10 years and uh, bankrupted themselves and then left. And uh, shortly after that, their empire fell apart. You've taken what I think is a pretty public stance. I mean, coming up here, 
in front of your house, you've got two very prominent signs, one bring the troops home and the other one saying a big peace sign. Have you taken hits as a public school teacher, as a public persona, for standing against the war? Oh, definitely. Um, when the students walked out of the memorial in uh, the spring of uh, March of 2003, there was a, it was a student-led organization. They got together, and over 100 students got up and walked out in protest of the impending war. They had asked me to be their advisor because in order to organize as a group, they had to have a teacher on as an advisor, even though I didn't do anything. But I said, I will support you in that. You want to walk out? Good for you. Oh, yeah. There, there, was, uh, there were teachers who were incredibly angry. There was editorializing in our local newspaper. There was no different anywhere across the nation. <clears throat> I don't think there's any worse or any, you know, any better here. But that media drumbeat that in a time of war you have to support your president and you have to support your military – was just curious to me. He said, we're, we don't, uh, I'm not in the military. I don't have to support a commander-in-chief. And, you know, I, I'm free to stand up and say, no, I think this is, a, this is a wrong idea. I think in Christmas of 2004, I made the sign, one of the signs that says, bring them home now. And I lit it up with some Christmas tree lights, attached it to my basketball backboard in my garage. Anonymous complaints then to the city uh, had me take it down because, one, it was a roof sign, and two, it was um, a few square inches larger than is accepted by city statute. So I trimmed it down so it is now the proper square footage, and um, it's now in the front of my house, and I simply decided now with Afghanistan becoming Obama's war that instead of just waiting for the Christmas holiday, I just leave it up because I'm so thoroughly disappointed as to what's going on in Afghanistan and that we're just going to continue. And I'm also surrounded by people in a neighborhood who are very gung-ho about war, but none of their kids are in harm's way, which is typical for the nation because what is the statistic? There's only you know a small one-tenth one of a percent or something like that of people who actually have uh, soldiers in their family who are serving close to combat or in combat. And so people don't get it. They just, they don't think about it. They, they volunteered. You know, I hear that a lot. Well, they volunteered. Uh, so, yeah, we've, we've, we've definitely taken some hits. Uh, we had the, the peace sign got ripped off my wall on the 2nd of January in the middle of the night. And I had it wrapped as a Christmas wreath with some lights on it. I assume it was young men walked up in the snow and, I uh, yanked it off my wall. I, I immediately replaced it with another one, and I screwed it to the wall with uh, a lot more screws. So if they're going to take this one off, they're going to work a little harder. Do you have a real sense that in the neighborhood that most of the people are thinking in a different direction to you? Are they all saying support the war while your signs are saying, you know, bring them home now? Oh, I know that exists with uh, with a few people in the neighborhood, as it would all across the nation. I mean, you still see, you know, polls and so on that demonstrate a significant percentage of the people think that we're still doing the right thing, or at least they hope we're doing the right thing. One of the things that I was telling my students in 2003 was that I hope my country is right, but I fear it's wrong because... As a citizen of a country, you hope that your leaders make good decisions. There's still some of this, you know, certainly some of this attitude, although it's a lot easier protesting the war now than it was in 2003, 2004. 
I know that I'm a, re- a regular member of uh, of our Peace Corner crew in Chippewa Falls. In our unofficial poll of how many times we get flipped off and yelled at, uh, somewhere around in the spring of 2007, where we could stand for an hour and um, frequently on a Saturday never see a negative comment, uh, where we would always have three, four, five, maybe ten in an hour. Before that, most people just ignore you. They look straight. We, I call them straight-aheaders, people that drive past us and look straight ahead. Like if they look straight ahead, we're not there, uh, which I think is you know kind of an example of you know, how we approach the concept of war. If we don't think about it, if it's not affecting us directly, then somehow it really doesn't matter. No, it's easier now I mean, to, to be opposed to the war because the polls have completely flip-flopped. In 2003, the numbers were somewhat somewhere around 30 to 70. About 30% of the people opposed the war, about 70% of the people, when they asked, were, would support it. And somewhere around 2007, towards the end of 2007, those numbers have flip-flopped like 60-40, something like that. And I think that's, from what I can tell, if we're standing out in the street, that would be fairly accurate. You have another aspect that really involves you with concerns about Iraq, and that is that I think you've got a daughter over there. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? When she went in, did she know that you were anti-war? Uh, Why did she go in the military? Was this was this static between you? I think that makes it a little bit complicated, and it also makes it cleaner because I've seen you standing out there on the corner when we're doing a rock moratorium. I see you stand out there and I see people yell like you're some idiot and you don't care about our soldiers and you say, I've got a daughter over there. And all of a sudden they say, oh, I just put my foot in my mouth, didn't I? Well, certainly there's been, we've seen lots of examples about that. My um, daughter was um, being recruited for sports, for basketball, and a number of schools had contacted her. And one day it was the United States Military Academy at West Point. We ended up visiting, and this is in 2000. Uh, she graduated in 2001, spring of 2001, before 9-11, 2001. The, the rigor and the challenge and the prestige, and when we visited there, I'm a history guy, and, of course, the history just oozes out of every corner of the place. It was a challenge. I mean, and I understand the military, uh, you know, being that and, and providing a tremendous challenge uh, physically and mentally in the training and so on. And she chose to go to the military academy at West Point, and I supported that partly because I thought, well, she's not warlike. In fact, I think it's very accurate to say the only weapon I believe she ever held in her hands up to basic training was nerf fencing when she was about four or five when the nerf fencing things and they were kind of fun and and uh, that was about it and so no she pretty much a pacifist pretty much artistic uh, but athletic and wanted to take the challenge and so here she is enrolled at the United States Military Academy and September 11th happens and so I'm counting on my fingers, you know, four years to graduate. Well, this this nonsense has got to be over in four years. And, of course, graduation comes around in 2005, and we're still listening to the same pontification from our leaders about how great and how important it is that we continue the, the effort in Iraq because uh, we can't cut and run. We, uh, 
leaving will dishonor those who are killed and so on and so forth. So she ends up deploying to Iraq, and she was never a trigger puller. She uh, has not been a trigger puller. The first year, the, 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 for her first deployment, she was extended to 15 months, and her base was routinely mortared and things like that. And, of course, it was one of the bloodiest years of the war. And then she was home for about a year and then redeployed again in November of the, this past year. And so she has, I think she's in week number 38 of the second uh, tour, and this one, 52 weeks, because they stopped the whole extension going from 12 months to 15 months. So this tour will be over in 12 months, come around November. So it's made it, it's made it really interesting, really difficult. And one time when she was home, she even came with us and stood at Peace Corner in Chippewa. And one young man, it's usually young men who heckle us the most, drove by and yelled, uh, why don't you all go to Iraq? And my daughter was staying there, and she yelled back, I've been there, which I have always thoroughly enjoyed. You know, she's a good soldier. She does her duty. Like all of us, she hopes that this works out for the best. But knowing what we know, If you just tuned in, this is Spirit in Action, and my name is Mark Helpsmeet. I'm your host for this Northern Spirit Radio production. You can always listen to our programs again over and over via the web. The website is northernspiritradio.org, and you'll also find links on the site. That'll help you connect with the documentation and the groups that are related to my guests. I'm speaking today with Myron Buchholz. He is a teacher here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, in the high school, in Memorial High School. And he's been a very prominent figure on the streets speaking out against the war. And what I'm wondering, Myron, is you understand that war is stupid. That's what you said. You, you think it, it's really bad decision. You're a history teacher, so you've looked at the mass of evidence. A lot of people make those decisions, and then they stay home. They say, yeah, I think it's stupid, but I'm not going to get involved. What is it that made you different, made you willing to stand out there, that made you, I think, compelled to stand out there on Saturdays, once a month on Fridays, and you know, going to Wednesday's uh, vigil against the war? Why is it that you're putting your life into prominence? Well, the folly of it all. We've been lied to, and there's so little on a, on a national scale covering uh, how ridiculous this war is that it just seemed to me that somebody you know has to stand up and at least demonstrate their disagreement. And of course, I wasn't uh, never stood by myself. There's you know, a significant core group of people who are just willing to stand out and we we hold our signs and we always feel that at some point, as hopeless as it is, one young man drove past us uh, once at Chippewa and he yelled, you're wasting your time, and I yelled back, I know. (laughs) But we, we stand because I think the biggest reason is that if we're not there, there'd be nobody. And there's got to be somebody that is demonstrating to at least the children that you just don't have to get in line. 
And I always feel the best when I see a carload of people go past us on a Saturday and there's little children looking out the window. Um, I always hope that that matters somewhat to them in the future, that maybe they'll remember this, that it's okay. Peace is an interesting concept. It is very profitable. Peace is very profitable for the majority of people. And uh, somebody has got to stand out there and say that, well, whether we're wasting our time or not. And, of course, Myron, some of the young people that you're affecting are the ones that are in your classrooms, the people in your school. And you mentioned when you had the walkout at Memorial, the 100 or so students who walked out against our going into Iraq. When you did that, they came to you and said, hey, we need someone we can trust to do that, to stand on our side to say, yes, I'm the representative for this group, or I'll take the hits, I think, for it. My question is, you've been asking these questions of your students. You're trying to make them think. Have you seen it have an effect? Have you seen, perhaps, the students who say, I'm going in the military, and you say, look at this question, look at this question, and they say, I've done the research, and now I'm going a different direction. Well, I know there's uh, there were young people who, you know, I'm sure changed their minds over the course because this has been such a long war. It's going to soak in eventually. So, yes, I, I know there are young people who have been more willing to stand up and uh, ask questions, ask questions of their leaders. And I think, that, you know, across the entire country, some some of that was displayed in our last presidential election. You know, the, the the vote for Obama, I just saw the statistics. Again, the only age group that was significantly increased was the one under 30. And I think back to the Vietnam era, which was really powerful in my, my young life because I, you know, being born in 1958, I was uh, a sophomore in high school when the, when the hostilities for Americans ended. But I watched that war almost every night through my grade school years and into my high school years and watched and can remember how the attitude changed over time. I was reminding my students that there were only three channels and we watched, you know, now departed Walter Cronkite. And so at 6 o'clock we were watching the news. And from, you know, me being about six years old in 1964 until I was a sophomore in high school in uh, 1973, we watch something about Vietnam every night. And at some point, the attitude just changed. We're a long ways into this conflict. And I know the attitude is changing, but I haven't seen anything on a national scale from our congressional delegation to really make me have confidence that we are going to stop this anytime soon. So it's it just, it just goes on. And... You know, I like to remind people to count on their fingers. You have to count on your fingers to to really demonstrate to yourself how long this has been going on. We've had troops in harm's way in Afghanistan since 2001, and we've had troops uh, in, uh, in Iraq since March of 2003. So here now I have students who, when you do that math, you know, there's you know, mainly sophomores that I see, well, when this war started, they were in grade school. And it's quite, it's somewhat profound when you think about that, because that that generation coming up, they're, they're getting pretty tired of it.
this is typical. It happens. You know, it's always exciting. One of the things I, I try to point out to, to people I talk to is how typically it's so exciting to go to war. They show pictures of Germans marching off to World War One and Americans over there, and everybody's so fired up and so excited to go to war. And then after a few years, it starts to soak in. And throughout history, it's usually only taken a couple years for it to soak in. Um, our modern wars now, being these wars of an insurgency, are taking so much longer, and uh, we are so they're so remote that the impact just isn't there on a day-to-day basis. And with our media simply not showing any real pictures of the horrors of war, people just don't know. Uh, they just don't think about it, and so it doesn't exist. How would you describe yourself, Myron? Are you pacifist? Are you anti-military? Are you just a rationalist who looks at it and say most of the time it's a bad idea? How would you describe yourself? What crystallization do you have, at least at this point in time? Because I'm not saying that you won't change next month. Well, I've never been anti-military. You know, that's that's one of the uh, one of the true wonders to me of what uh, the hardcore militarists in this country have done with the simple sign of the peace symbol. That holding a peace sign for many people when they go by, they interpret a peace sign as a symbol that you, A, hate your country, and B, hate your military. A complete perversion of what the symbol actually means. I always uh, chuckle at the fact that, you know, one of the nicknames of Jesus of Nazareth is the Prince of Peace. You know, I don't think you can go into many Christian churches and not have a common greeting of peace be with you. When I stand on a corner and hold a peace sign, I become evil in the eyes of many people. And I, it's, it's really a turnaround from the, the Vietnam protests and the rewriting of history that the protesters actually caused our defeat in Vietnam and somehow that, you know, the, the peace activists were anti-American and anti-soldier. Uh, you know, I feel you know very confident in saying that that um, somebody sees the peace sign, they interpret it completely opposite of what it is. So defense? No, I'm not opposed to defense. One of the funniest things I've ever heard is uh, a criticism of the peace protesters saying, "Well, gee, then then you'd like your house to be burglarized because you're so peaceful." How ridiculous, how childish. You know, some of the arguments that you hear are just so bizarre. And some of those arguments come from mainstream talking heads on with their megaphone of the national media. No, I don't want my house burglarized. No, I don't, my, don't want my country attacked. But quite frankly, you know, we need to stop calling it the Department of Defense because it hasn't been defense for a long time. It's been offense. You know, you look at our department, it should be called the Department of Offense. Because this is the new attitude that now, you know, we need to preemptively find our enemies and kill them. Well, you've got a vicious circle there, one that's not held up well over history. Uh, so, no, I am, you know, anti-military. No, I supported my daughter going into the military. That would be a good challenge for her. I had my fingers crossed that we wouldn't get into any stupid wars during her time in the military. And, of course, that didn't happen. In hindsight... What would I have done? Well, um, if she would have graduated from high school a year later, after 9-11, uh, you know, I would have definitely counseled against it. Uh, but entering the military in a time of peace, uh, I did say to her that, uh, you know, when you do sign your name on the bottom line, if, you're, uh, if Uncle Sam invites you to a war, it's very difficult to refuse. 
And she knew that going in. You know, we had talks. We, we, we talked about the reality of joining the military. This was not a, you know, this was not an overnight decision. This was a long, long decision, and she has done well. And I hope for a safe return here in a in a few months. As do I. Are you part of military families speak out? What's your association with Veterans for Peace? These bigger associations of people who are standing against the war. What kind of affiliation do you have with any of them? I'm not a member of Military Families Speak Out, and I don't know why. I have all, I've thought about it, and we've talked about it numerous times, and I am a, an associate member of Vets for Peace, which is kind of ridiculous because I'm not a vet, but Vets for Peace allow associate memberships because some of my closest friends in this peace movement are vets, and uh, early in the war I came to understand that if there was anybody that had any real clout in speaking up against this war, it was vets. And so supporting that organization with a few dollars worth of dues would seem to be the right thing to do. And so I, I can proudly say I'm an associate member of Vets for Peace because of my association with so many veterans who are have seen enough of war. They, they've seen enough, and they don't want to see it anymore, and knowing there are other ways to get things done. I'm going to toss in a bit of my personal philosophy. I believe that one of the reasons that peace witness against these wars from the 80s, 90s to the current decade, the reason that that has been as tepid as it has is because the peace witness, which grew strongly under Vietnam, was not embodied in organizations that were self-sustaining. I think we have to teach peace in terms of community, not just in a book and not just uh, as individuals. So when I asked you what organizations are you part of, I'm partly asking where do you get the sustenance, where do you pass the sustenance on for that? So I'll ask you again, are there ways that you see that our society could benefit and that you personally would benefit from being part of organization which uh, maybe it's more rational, maybe it's more heartful, I don't know what it is, organizations which will help carry our community into the future? We have to hope that's all we have. There, there's a book, I haven't read it, I, I just thought the title is so cool, uh, we made love and got war, and I know it's a uh, you know, retrospective look at the peace movement out of Vietnam. That it's saying exactly what you said that there was a movement, but it had no legs. As soon as the war went away, it was like, oh, okay, it's over. This will never happen again. Well, then we've watched it happen over and over and over again. One, we just have to stop glorifying war to start with. I see that over and over again in our history books and our movies. Young males just love to watch war movies. And even with all the graphic detail that you have in war movies now, it doesn't do it, and I think in large part because it does nothing to portray the long-term cost of war, that the heroism and the bravery of the day-to-day combat is all that's ever portrayed, and rarely do you ever have anything that, that shows the long-term cause, how damaging it is to society. I fear so badly that we had 500,000 soldiers in Desert Storm, and that bred one Timothy McVeigh. 
We've had over a million soldiers deployed in this war. Violence that is bred by war doesn't necessarily stop when the war ends for individuals. And so, you know, what do we do? You know, I, that, that's a good one. I will, we, we, I think that one of the things that was shocking to many people who see us stand at Peace Corner was that we were still there after the Obama election. Because I know many people interpret us just as, you know, anti-Bush. When, and it's true, we were. But we are also anti-war. And so with the cheerleading for Obama and all this wonderful talk, you know, those of us who took a, well, let's see, you know, wait and see attitude. Now Obama has more people uh, in harm's way than Bush ever did. Guantanamo is not closed. Rendition, there's some suspicion that that's still going on. The uh, indefinite detention, which just about makes me want to cry. Indefinite detention? That, that's what we fought against in the American Revolution. And now we're doing it. And a, this is a terrible thought historically. So what do you do? Well, we're still out in the street. It didn't matter that it was a different president. What matters is the war goes on. Uh, you know, we got to have some legs, and you, we, we got to stay with this because I uh, sometimes counsel students that in 20 years, if history is our guide, we're almost guaranteed to do this again. You need to be willing to stand up and not want your children to do this because the age group I'm talking to in 20 years, they would have kids. And they those children would be the ones going off to war. But you look back at the pattern, and we're just destined to do this again and again and again. Uh, unless somebody you know stands up and says, this has got to stop. So I hope these groups that are out there can do it. I know what the history books say about the people that have stood up and taken completely unpopular positions about war, and those people are hailed as heroes. And the people that have led wars, caused wars, are the villains. And so we need to keep that in mind when we start rolling towards our next war. But then, of course, we have a lot of the heroes of war, like Grant or Eisenhower, who then go on to become our presidents. And it's pretty rare that you see a Quaker president, a Quaker anti-war president. Richard Nixon being the sad exception to Quakers who usually oppose war, and there he was symbolizing a lot of what Quakers think is the worst behavior you could have. So what groups have been effective long-term? What movements have been effective, education or otherwise? Where have we seen the best success? And I'm going to guess that the best success that we've had was in Japan. I think we built a more pacifist society there by the end of that war than any other country I know of, except maybe India. Well, the Japanese example is incredible because one of the things that has stood the test of time for Japan is the prohibition on the Japanese having a military. If you have one, you use it. Well, the Japanese have a Coast Guard. Uh, they apparently are not that worried about being attacked. They certainly must not have been worried too much about being attacked by the Vietnamese and Koreans and so on. It, if they wanted to change it, of course they could. India is an interesting study. When nuclear war is brought up for much of my teaching career, he said I was never really worried about the Soviets and the Americans nuking each other. 
for a number of different reasons, and cultural similarities and, and so on. But uh, the Pakistanis and the Indians both having nuclear capability and having some animosities that go back to partition in 1947, it seemed to me that there were some military leaders there that would be much more willing to press the button. But yet the people, you know, are generally pacifist, anti-war. So, you know, this is going to sound anti-military, but uh, what Eisenhower warned against that uh, has come to fruition, the military-industrial complex is in control. Our own local newspaper, you know, has an article about uh, our Presto Industries having a very profitable year. You have to read into the middle of the article to find out that their most profitable sales was in 40-millimeter shells for the military. We have Oshkosh, which is just overjoyed because they got a contract to build a new bomb-proof vehicle. Wherever you look, and, and when, sometimes when I want to uh, just be obnoxious at Peace Corner, I always remind the people standing next to me that we're just jealous that we didn't invest in the war industries when the war started. Because for all the talk of the economic downturn, there is no economic downturn for the companies that are producing military hardware. They're doing really well. That's scary. There's only one, what, what can you hope, to, what business can you hope that comes to town that's going to employ? And if you open a war uh, plant, uh, I know a, lo a couple years ago I read that we couldn't even keep up with bullet production. We were buying bullets from Israel. And that doesn't surprise me. It's just so profitable. The military-industrial complex is really scary to me because standing up to that, uh, I'm not that smart. But we're counting on you, Myron. We're counting on you to come up with the answers. I wanted to ask you about your perspective. And this, again, is as a history teacher, as a person who's getting the big picture in focus. God bless America is the big rallying call following 9-11. To some degree, I think we needed as a nation healing, uh, pulling together, valuing one another, uh, saying we're not beaten, downtrod. But, of course, right away that phrase gets used as God bless us and the rest of them, we don't care about their welfare. So my question is, your perspective from history, we, they, your last name, your surname, Buchholz, the German name. So you're one of the enemy. You're one of those Nazis, right? I mean, you're maybe the reason you're opposing is because you want Germany to take over the nation. And, you know, that's I, people can think that way when they get into a we they point of view. Your ideas? One of the things that bothers me the most about our modern society is the ridiculousness of the meaningless soundbite. You know, God bless America. I, I, I chuckle every time I see that there's some spare tire covers in town. It's an American flag and a spare tire cover, and then it says, there's only one. And I chuckle to myself, no, there isn't. There's a million of them, and <laughs> there's flags all over Eau Claire, but there's only one. It, it, it becomes, when you the sound bite sounds good. When it's thought about rationally, it becomes pretty ridiculous. You know, God bless America. Well, okay, well, and God bless the Iranians, too. I mean, you know, Allah Akbar means God is great, and yet that is a reason for us to bomb other people. And in reality, the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition all 
comes from the same core religious experience and the same God. So I am really, really opposed to simplistic sound bites, and unfortunately that's what we are bombarded with. And in the short term it can seem like it makes sense until you stand up and say no. Uh, one of my neighbors here said to me, during this war that, well, 9-11 proves that our oceans don't protect us anymore. I thought, wow, I mean, how did our oceans, how did, how did our oceans uh, protect the Native Americans? Uh, how did our oceans protect us at Pearl Harbor, and how did our oceans protect us when the Soviets were routinely having submarine patrols in international waters with uh, 20 nuclear warheads? armed and only literally minutes away from the destruction of any American city. You know, our oceans don't protect us anymore. Um, but that that became just a, a common theme. Oh, now we have to go on the attack because our oceans don't protect us. Uh, one of my favorite T-shirts I've ever seen has a picture of Geronimo and his band of warriors on it, and the caption of the T-shirt says, Practicing Homeland Security since 1492. The soundbite is a hurtful item intellectually. It makes you believe things that are not true. But bumper stickers are good, right? So what's your favorite bumper sticker? I mean, we do live in a society of tweets and of sound bites. And so if you're going to compete in the marketplace of ideas, you have to put something brief out there, like bring troops home or whatever. So what are your favorite ones that, of course, obviously have some thought behind them. It's not enough to have a, a few words out there, but that should symbolize something deep. What are your favorite bumper stickers or your favorite word bites? Well, <laughs> uh, there's, the, there's a one longer one that's something about when the Pentagon starts having bake sales to, to buy missiles instead of public schools, you know, we'll all be better off. I've seen one, I actually have one that says something about, <clears throat> now that you've conquered Iraq, why don't you move there? And you know, there's, lots of, there's a lot of sarcasm on the peace side of the, you know, the bumper sticker. It's uh, incredibly sarcastic. And in the bumper sticker slogan, it needs a lot of explanation. <laughs> it doesn't... <laughs> And yet, uh, on the other side, the pro-war side, it's that you know, yellow ribbon, you know, support our troops. Every time I see one of those stickers, I think, what? When's the last time you sent a package or you sent a letter? You know, support our troops, and and we know it. The answer for the great majority would be none of them. So there's a lot of really good ones out there. A lot of good sarcasm, and that um, makes you smile when you see them. And I know I've seen more of them in the past couple of years, and there's than there was in 2003 for sure. So it's another, uh, you know, unscientific poll of how attitudes have changed about the war. One area we haven't talked about is religion or spirituality, and I know that you don't particularly identify strongly in that area, but I'm pretty sure you do have an historical overview that includes the role that religion or spirituality has played in peace or war. So what insights can you give me, and how do you connect with that personally? Well, I had a hard time while I actually haven't been back to the church I attended since the 2003 when walking into a church and being surrounded by bumper stickers that were promoting war and then having people that had 
because of their politics, you knew they were supporting war, turn around and say, peace be with you at a church service. That pretty much completely turned me off to organized religion. I have a, a uh, an aspect of uh, an, an idea, especially it goes back to our American Revolution, that our founders were really tired of following people wearing crowns and robes. And whether those crowns and robes signified religious leadership or political leadership, it didn't matter. Many of our founders described themselves as deists. They had a concept that there could be a greater power out there, but they weren't interested in taking orders from some human who, because of title, is supposed to be held up as you know, God on earth or something like that. So I kind of consider myself a deist in that in in that sense that when I'm teaching geography, you know, geography books describe an ocean as a big body of water. And there's a little more to it than that, but generally that's all you get. And, and I like to ask, you know, my students who have been to an ocean, you know, when you stand by an ocean, does the description big body of water describe it very well? And, of course, they laugh. And, you know, the power of nature is very incredible. I, In the summertime for my battery recharge, I frequently walk almost daily in the morning out at Lowe's Creek in the trees. And, and uh, I have a friend who says that he worships at the Church of the Great Outdoors, and I've become a, uh, uh, a believer in that as a, as a way to approach. I say I go to Mass every day of the week and church on Sunday. That sounds like a good base to me. I want to thank you so much for taking the time, Myron, especially in your laid-back time. Here I am making you think hard when you could be just sitting here charging your batteries, getting ready for the school year. Thanks for standing out there, being a prominent figure, taking the risk, standing up as a teacher in public school, doing that, loving the soldiers at the same time. You've got a daughter over there loving the soldiers at the same time, you're saying, let's do the best thing for our country. So thank you for standing in all those ways. Well, it's been my pleasure talking to you. It's been a real enjoyable experience. Thank you very much. That was Myron Buchholz, today's Spirit in Action guest. He teaches history at Eau Claire Memorial High School. And in line with Myron's historical outlook on and opposition to war, I want to send you out with a song by Phil Oaks. His song, I Ain't a Marching Anymore. Oh, I marched to the Battle of New Orleans At the end of the early British War the Young land started growing, the young blood started flowing But I ain't marching anymore For I killed my share of engines in a thousand different fights I was there at the Little Big Horn I heard many men lying, I saw many more dying, but I ain't marching anymore. It's always the old to lead us to the wars, it's always the young to fall. Now look at all we've won with the saber and the gun, tell me is it worth it all? For I stole California from the Mexican land Fought in the bloody Civil War Yes, I even killed my brothers So many others But I ain't marching anymore 
battles of the German trench In a war that was bound to end all wars Oh, I must have killed a million men Now they want me back again But I ain't marching anymore It's always the old to lead us to the wars It's always the young to fall Now look at all we've won with a saber and the gun Tell me, is it worth it all? Or I flew the final mission in the Japanese skies Set off the mighty mushroom roar When I saw the cities burning Knew that I was learning That I ain't marching anymore Now the labor leader is screaming when they close a missile plant United Fruit screams at the Cuban shore Call it peace or call it treason Call it love or call it reason But I ain't marching anymore No, I ain't marching anymore The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.